When we talk about the history of the southwestern United States, we're mostly thinking about the people's history. But everybody comes from somewhere looking for land, food, and a place to call home. I'm Katie Stone, and here at the Children's Hour, we wanted to learn more about the history of the place we call home. In this series, we're diving into how the high desert region of the southwestern United States came to be what it is today, and who's shaped that history along the way. This is A Brief History of the American Southwest for Kids. Last episode, we left you on a pretty big cliffhanger. It's the mid-1500s. That's more than 400 years ago. And at the time in the desert southwest, people who had been living here for over 20,000 years found themselves occupied by strangers. You mean the Spanish soldiers and priests. Exactly. The arrival of the Spanish marked the beginning of what's called colonialism in the Southwest. That's when people come to an area they don't own, take over some or all of the land, and try to make money off of it and its people. There's a huge story to tell about what happened in the hundred-plus years after the arrival of the Spanish, who came to this region in search of the cities of gold that they heard existed here in the desert southwest. Diego Medina, Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Puro Mansotewa tribe, told us all about it. The goal of the Spanish was to completely get rid of any semblance of Puebloan culture and religion and assimilate everybody. And so within 140 years, The Puebloan religions were banned. The agricultural practices were changed. The community structures and social structures were changed. You know, a lot of people were getting imprisoned for practicing their own cultures and sometimes getting more violent punishment for practicing traditional Puebloan culture and religion here in New Mexico. The settlers used violence for controlling indigenous people, like enslaving them and even beating or killing some for practicing their religious beliefs. Like Pope. That's right. He's a very important example. Pope was a Puebloan religious leader. In the 1670s, the Spanish convicted him of sorcery and he was sentenced to be whipped. And after he suffered that punishment, he made a decision, one that he knew would surely lead to danger he decided to organize a revolt against the Spanish. When we think about our ceremonial traditions and practices in our tribal communities in New Mexico, they're deeply interconnected with the entire ecosystem. And so our role with our ceremonies and as humans is to maintain that spiritual balance with the ecosystem. In the same way that every animal has their place and their their own role in the ecosystem, we have ours as well. And so when the Spanish forces came in the mid-1500s and forcibly tried to shift the lifeways of people living in New Mexico and the religious practice living in New Mexico, it also came with some environmental conditions that were not so favorable. People started to notice that things were shifting in ways that were 
alluding to potential poor harvests and environmental collapse and things like that. And so really intuitive, inspired leaders like Pope realized that the Pueblo revolt was going to be necessary. So that way, the traditions of the Puebloan people can once again be at the forefront of the cultural practices of communities. So that way we can reintegrate within the ecosystem and keep that balance going. And so the driving force behind the Pueblo revolt was actually ecological. It was for the sanctity of the entire ecosystem we live in. So that way, um, the health of New Mexico and all of the plants and animals living here can be ensured. But how did he do it? Pope made an incredibly creative plan to tell others in the area when the revolt was happening using a calendar system. Except this is the 1670s, and people didn't have calendars on their phones or hanging in their kitchens, at least not in the way we do today. His plan was to create a system of woven cordage that can be untied to mark the days until the Pueblo Revolt needs to happen, which was scheduled for August 11th. And he chose that day because of some of the intuition he had around the seasons and the stars and the need to execute during that time of the year. The way many indigenous people tell it, these cords were made of deerskin or possibly the yucca palm. So think of almost a long piece of leather with several knots tied into the strip. Organizers delivered them from hundreds of miles away. And each day leading up to the revolt, people would untie one knot from the strip. And once they untied the final knot, that's how they knew it was the day to fight. And remember when we talked about all the amazing trade that happened between tribes? Well, different tribes knew how to find each other to give out these cords using their old trade routes for transporting goods. But didn't different tribes speak different languages? That's a great question, and the answer has to do with those same trading routes used by the Puebloan people. Kind of like today, people were multilingual. And so we see evidence of different words entering the lexicon of other language families because people needed to trade and and communicate with one another. And so there's already kind of an overlap. It's kind of like if you live in El Paso, you know a little bit of Spanish because there's people that work there and live there that speak only Spanish or speaks mostly Spanish. And so you have to be able to get by, you know, you have to be able to ask where something is or how to get to the restroom or, you know, where, where, where you are. And so there is definitely shared overlap in language and bilingualism or multilingualism in New Mexico. And so with their plans and communication in place, in early August 1680, the Puebloan people began their fight. The Spanish forces, which are actually pretty small, you know, a thousand or so people scattered throughout the Santa Fe area and only a couple of hundred actually participated on behalf of the Spanish in the Pueblo Revolt as soldiers. And so the Puebloan forces were way more organized, which led to a successful revolt against the Spanish and the eventual exile of the Spanish people from northern New Mexico. It was a very bloody revolt. 
21 Franciscan friars, the priests who enslaved and controlled many indigenous people, were killed, along with 400 Spanish settlers. It was a big turning point after decades of increasing Spanish control of the region. Now, when we talk about the Pueblo Revolt, the reason I call it the first American Revolution is because it was successful. Similar to how we look at the American Revolution in history when the Americans at the time defeated the British and gained sovereignty from the British people. That happened in New Mexico where the Puebloan people had a revolution against the Spanish and regained sovereignty against the Spanish people. When we look at New Mexico history, not only is the Pueblo Revolt significant, of course, for United States history, it is probably one of the most, if not the most important historical event in New Mexico history because it really created all of the communities and the cultural framework we see today in New Mexico. And also the split between Northern New Mexico and Southern New Mexico and those cultural differences. In all of our stories, we have turning points, moments where something happens and your life changes forever. You start school or maybe your parents bring home a new sibling. These are big shifts. And thinking about the time after the Pueblo Revolt in 1680, the Southwest was having its own turning point. The aftermath wasn't so smooth because after 140 years, plus a big violent battle and revolution, things were pretty destabilized. And so those 12 years, of course, um, there was a lot of strife with people having to rebuild their communities, reintroduce their practices, plus contending with the things the Spanish brought that people had already adjusted to. Within 140 years, a lot of things can change. If we think about 140 years ago from today, that was around 1880. And so if we think about how our great, great, great grandparents lived in 1880 compared to how we live now, it's very, very different. And so we saw different Pueblo communities abandoned, others subsumed into different um, villages. Some villages and people were moved to different areas forcibly or otherwise and you start to see a completely changing landscape. What we have is kind of a severed state because of the Pueblo Revolt. We have a very disconnected northern and southern New Mexico. The driving force, the impetus behind Pope's need to do this was to ensure balance in New Mexico. However, that fracturing of New Mexico is something still felt to this day because of how disconnected some of the communities became in that violent aftermath. In southern New Mexico, of course, in the borderlands, we had the establishment of Isleta del Sur Pueblo, Socorro Pueblo, Senecu Pueblo, um, and then Guadalupe Pueblo, all right there in Juarez El Paso. And those were Pueblos that all of the native slaves and exiles from the Pueblo Revolt were placed. And so you had people from of course, the central New Mexican Tiwa Pueblos and Piro Pueblos, but also from Jemez, some people from Hopi, all placed there in the borderlands. And that creates a new culture in the borderlands, too. And so on one hand, you have the shifting culture in northern New Mexico. And then on the other hand, you have a shifting culture in southern New Mexico, too, because people are transplanted to this new region and culture starts developing down there in the borderlands in a different way as well. Were the Spanish settlers gone forever? Well, not quite. Twelve years after the revolt, the Spanish came back up the Rio Grande and tried again to reclaim the land in the name of the Spanish crown from the Pueblo people. 
the effort was not without fighting and compromise. The 1692 re-entrance of the Spanish into Santa Fe was something that, of course, wasn't in the plan of, of the Pueblo Revolt. But nevertheless, it is something that made the state what it is today, how we see it and how we know it. And so it was also something that led to a very important culture shift again in northern New Mexico and a lot more of a diverse cultural shift. And so during the 1700s, we actually get a period of some decent coexistence among Spanish communities and Puebloan communities because of the shared cultural practices that had been introduced between 1540 and 1680. And so you start to see the use of shared acequia systems, the use of shared cattle, the use of shared sheep uh, between the Pueblo and Spanish communities, and also agriculture and even labor in some ex- to some extent. And that was kind of something that you wouldn't have expected to happen before the Pueblo Revolt. And here is an unintended consequence of the Pueblo Revolt's success. While the Pueblo people, like Pope, obviously wanted to protect themselves and their culture from being erased, once the Spanish and the indigenous populations started living alongside one another, a whole new culture emerged. And one place where you can really see that is visiting churches at the Pueblos. If you pay attention, you'll see a blending of Catholicism, the religion of the Spanish, and other indigenous beliefs. One interesting thing that we see in New Mexico, which I think is actually pretty important to realize, is that there is a calendar to the Christian and Catholic religion as well that is actually very seasonal. And so when we look at the feast days and the relationship to the churches and pueblos, what we see is a calendar system of the year based on agricultural cycles. And so you see this correlation between the Catholic calendar and the traditional seasonal calendar here that made sense to both sides. And I think it actually reestablished a relationship with nature back into the the Catholic tradition that may have not been present at the time of the arrival of Catholicism into this land, but it also allowed Pueblo communities to maintain their traditional calendar system and their traditional practices here in this land. And which is why when we have our dances, we're able to still keep with our traditional seasonal calendar, while also acknowledging that the Catholic saints are appointed times in the year that also relate to the same type of seasonal calendar. When I was in school, I didn't know that the very first American Revolution actually happened in what's now my own backyard. But the more we learn and listen to local stories, the better we can understand our communities and our shared history. It's because of the Pueblo Revolt that our region's history is so rich and colorful. Well said. And on that note, I'm so ready to review everything we learned today. True or false, when Spanish conquerors came to that area that is now New Mexico, their goal was to learn from Pueblo people about their culture and religion. False. Unfortunately, the goal of the Spanish was to get rid of native culture, not to appreciate it. True or false, Pope was the leader of the Spanish conquerors. False. In fact, 
fact, quite the opposite. Pope was a Puebloan religious leader who the Spanish severely punished. Next up, true or false. Pope used a system of woven cords to communicate the date of the Pueblo revolt to other tribes. True. True or false? All of the Pueblos spoke the same language. False. Each group had a unique language, but there were some commonalities that evolved from the need to trade and communicate, and there are some people like today who spoke multiple languages. True or false, the Puebloan people vastly outnumbered the Spanish in the Pueblo Revolt. True. In fact, only a few hundred Spanish fought in the Pueblo Revolt, but the native people had much larger, much more organized groups of fighters, which eventually allowed them to defeat the Spanish. Ready for another? The 12 years following the Pueblo Revolt were spent in a period of revitalization. True. After 140 years of Spanish occupation, there was a lot of work to be done to reintroduce Pueblo religion and culture. I'm Katie Stone, and you're listening to The Children's Hour, a brief history of the American Southwest for kids. This was episode four in our six-part series. Find a learn-along guide to accompany this episode, which meets national education standards at childrenshour.org history. This program is made possible in part with the support from the New Mexico Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities or the New Mexico Humanities Council. If you'd like to hear the full stories from our virtual field trips, you can find videos of all of our conversations at childrenshour.org history. The Children's Hour is produced by the Children's Hour Incorporated, a New Mexico nonprofit. A Brief History of the American Southwest for Kids was written and produced by me, Katie Stone, and by Christina Stella. We had help from Julia Wolf, Isaac Lacerda, and Lily Mae Williams Hobbs. Our series theme music is performed by Marlon Magdalena, with additional music for this episode by Poddington Bear and Kevin McLeod. Special thanks to our amazing guests, Diego Medina, Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Piro Manso Tiwa Tribe, and Pueblo educator John Jahadi. We had additional support from our history review team, whose members are listed at our website. If you like what you just heard and want to support our work, head to childrenshour.org and visit us anytime on social media at TCH Radio. Thanks for listening to the Children's Hour, Kids Public Radio.